I'm a consultant in acute and general medicine in the United Kingdom and I am currently at the European School of Internal Medicine which is based at North Sweden. Today we have experienced a blackout and we've been snowed in however we have still managed to record a podcast and today I am very happy to be joined by. Uh, I'm Fraz Mir. thank you very much Amy for inviting me to your podcast. I'm a consultant physician in acute medicine and clinical pharmacology at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. And uh, it's a pleasure being here with you today. Fantastic. And what's really interesting is we had to come all the way to northern Sweden to meet. And we actually met on a night train. So um, more about that later. But we're going to talk about a case today. Um, We're going to talk about a a patient that you saw a little while ago. So just want you to tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, so this is a young lady who presented to hospital with a multiple... Uh, overdose comprising a number of different drugs and she presented with features of what we call serotonin syndrome so she was very agitated she was sweaty her blood pressure and heart rate were up she was quite sort of um, uh, sweaty with lots of um, clonus which was spontaneous actually and that's a hallmark of the serotonin syndrome so they have too much serotonin which then leads to them being quite excitable in general um, which can lead to seizures in the worst case scenario and can be quite fatal. But she's taken a cocktail of drugs that have a lot of serotonergic activity, uh, including things like um, SSRIs, paroxetine, uh, also um, tramadol, which has serotonergic activity, as well as being an opiate. And she's also taken some haloperidol. So there's a bit of confusion as to whether it was a serotonin syndrome or whether she had a neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Okay, so if we go back to basics a little bit, tell me a little bit about serotonin and what impact it actually has on our body. And do we all have it? Yes, we all have it. Uh, It's one of the major neurotransmitters in the brain, in the central nervous system. And it um, uh, is seen as being the most important determinant of mood in a lot of people. So as you know, it's um, uh, the sort of main target for therapies we use for depression, for instance. Uh, And the idea being that actually um, the antidepressant drugs uh, enhance serotonergic transmission. There's a bit of controversy, as you may know recently, about whether depression actually is related to low levels of serotonin per se, but that's another topic altogether. Um, But serotonergic um, syndrome can occur mainly if you take drugs that modulate the serotonin levels in your body, um, rather than, for instance, uh, an idiosyncratic reaction that happens with a neuroleptic medication. Okay. So our patient, she was 32 and she took a mixed overdose. So you said that she took haloperidol, she took tramadol, and she took a serotonin medication, so a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Correct. She took proxy. In fact, she also took some melafaxine, which okay. is a, it was a sort of mixture of um, an SSRI, but made in SNRI, so a selective noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. Okay. But a lot of any drug that, if you like, um, interferes with the function of the brain can uh, in effect cause a serotonin type syndrome. Okay so what other medications might cause this type of symptomatology? Well there's a huge array of medications that can do it so you know there's reports of even some antibiotics doing it, linezolid is a well-known one but also other drugs um, like anti-epileptic drugs as well as sort of uh, like I say antidepressants 
Okay. So there's a whole array of different drugs that can, in fact, cause a serotonin syndrome. And it is a dose-related phenomenon. So the more serotonergic drugs you take, the more likelihood of you developing a serotonin syndrome. Okay. Uh, whereas with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, as we, as I mentioned earlier, it's an idiosyncratic reaction that can happen normally within the first six months of starting those drugs, but it can happen any time. Uh, and it's independent of the dose. So it, it could be with a small dose or it could be with a high dose. Okay. So serotonin syndrome is very much the more you take, the more you are at risk of developing serotonin syndrome. Whereas with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, it's really dose independent. In effect, yes, that's true. Okay. So patient presents to you then and you, you're concerned that serotonin syndrome may be a problem. What are the typical symptoms of somebody who presents with serotonin syndrome? And what do I need to look out for in the emergency department? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, um, she was very agitated. So akathisia or general restlessness is uh, the technical term. So akathisia, they have autonomic uh, lability or instability where the blood pressure and heart rate are quite high. Um, sweating, so they're diaphoretic. They classically have what we call clonus, and that could be ocular clonus where their eyes are sort of moving around with quite marked, exaggerated nystagmus. Uh, or they can have um, sort of muscular clonus, mainly of the sort of ankles. And, you know, when you try the clonus test, they will often be very, very hyperreactive. Okay. And that's classical of serotonin syndrome, whereas with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, they will often have a um, sort of cogwheel rigidity, a sort of lead pipe um, rigidity, which is different to what you get with serotonin syndrome. Okay, so if you are in the emergency department or on the on-call and you are concerned, somebody took haloperidol and an SSRI, how would you help determine which is which on clinical examination? So you've mentioned cogwheel rigidity. Yes. Is there anything else that you would look for? I think those are the, the main thing is clonus versus a cogwheel rigidity. Okay. The other thing is, again, this is generalisation, serotonin syndrome people tend to be very much agitated and restless and up and about quite sort of needing of sedation, whereas people with neuroleptic malignant syndrome will often be a bit more subdued. Okay. They may have pyrexia, they may be sort of hot and quite sort of stiff and looking unwell, but often they are less restless and agitated by okay. and And what about pyrexia and serotonin syndrome? Is that something that you see? Yeah, so the autonomic lability in terms of heart rate, blood pressure, they will often be sweaty and febrile too, so that's definitely part of the syndrome, yeah. Okay, so you've got somebody who's in front of you, they, you're still not entirely sure whether it's neuroleptic malignant syndrome or serotonin syndrome. Are there any investigations that you would like to do that you think could be helpful in this diagnosis? Okay, so um, I think in terms of the dose we mentioned already in terms of history, you would know, mm -hmm. you know what is more likely just based on what they've taken and how much and whatnot. In terms of investigations, people often say that with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, the creatinine kinase yeah. level will be a lot higher than mm -hmm. it is with, say, serotonin syndrome. But that's not always true. I mean, mm -hmm. you can get quite marked rhabdomyolysis with serotonin syndrome too. Okay. Um, so by and large, yes, with neuroleptic syndrome, you'd have a higher CK, but you can get high CK with both. Okay. And is the raised um, creating kinase because of muscle movement and excitability? Sure. It's muscle okay. breakdown, basically. Uh, the hyperparexia, mm -hmm. the agitation, um, it will lead to sort of like damage to the muscles. And okay. that's, especially with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, the muscles will stiffen up and it's mm -hmm. sort of often coupled with a very high fever. That okay. will lead to breakdown of the muscles and you'll end up getting the sort of 
CK rise that you see. So if you've got a very high CK, does that also then, would you have an abnormal urinary electrolytes? Would you start to have abnormal kidney function? You may do. I mean, if your creatinine kinase breakdown at levels are such that, you know, you are basically breaking down muscle to produce lots of myoglobin, which of course is then mm -hmm. toxic to the kidneys and you block off your kidneys, then yes, you may end up getting acute kidney injury, okay. um, which can be quite marked and they may you know, have these sort of classical darker urine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's quite an extreme case. I mean, normally people will present hopefully early enough and you diagnose it early enough, you then sort of take precautions and you know, treat them so that they don't get to the situation where they end up with kidney failure and whatnot. So often, you know, generally because it's so febrile, they will be dehydrated anyway. So one of the, the main modes of treatment is to cool them down mm -hmm. and actually giving them some intravenous fluids is a great way of cooling them down because you're infusing normally cool crystalloid into them. Mm -hmm. So that in itself will be helpful, A, to protect your kidneys, but also to help re reduce your fever and, and the dehydration in general. And then the other main mode of therapy is to sort of um, calm them down with serotonin syndrome because, like I say, they're very agitated. Okay. And the, the main treatment for that would be some benzodiazepine, uh, or you can use um, a sedating, old sedating antihistamine such as cyproheptadine, uh, which is less available. Mm. But if you can get it, it's quite helpful. Okay. So you, you're at the investigation phase and you've got your high CK. I'm at the bedside. I don't have any fancy tests that I can do at that time. Are there any changes that we'll see on the ECG, for example? So you may get sort of, um, you know, with an SSRI of this, you might get prolongation of the QT tool anyway. But the commonest thing you'll probably see is a sinus tachycardia okay. for both of them, just because mm -hmm. of the, the fever. Other than that, I don't think any bedside test is very helpful. Okay. The main thing is examination. And if you can elicit clonus very easily, yeah. then that is much more suggestive of serotonin syndrome, whereas with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, you're, you're really looking for the um, rigidity. rigidity. Okay. What about blood glucose? Is that ever affected in any of these cases? Um, I mean, normally, I mean, you would always check it yeah. Uh, yeah. with any sort of presenting patient. Yeah, everyone gets a VBG or an ABG nowadays. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Sugars on them. yeah. Normally, it's not really affected by and large. I mean, they may be slightly hyperglycemic because of mm -hmm. the, the sort of breakdown and the okay. fever and whatnot, but it, it isn't normally an issue per okay. se. And if they have a very high CK and they are have a high temperature, what about their lactate? Is that something that you would look at in these patients? Yeah, so again, as, as I said, everyone will get a VBG or ABG mm -hmm. when they come in and uh, often just with fever, you know, uh, dehydration, etc., their lactate will be up. Okay. So um, again, it doesn't help you to differentiate though. Yeah. Okay, and does the same go for white cell count and the neutrophil count? Yeah, you can certainly get white count yeah. response. Was all the acute phase reactants may be up, so your might be down, your CRP white counts may be up. So okay. all those things can happen, yeah. But it doesn't help you distinguish between neuroleptic malignant syndrome and yeah. serotonin syndrome. And it sounds like what you're saying is that the key thing here, it's all about the history and the examination. Yeah, as with most medicine, of uh, most of the answers are in the history and examination. So just to summarise, you know, in the history, it's a dose-related phenomenon. It's more likely to be serotonin syndrome. Yeah. And with the examination, if it's clonus, it's serotonin syndrome, and if it's sort of rigidity, it's neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So those would be the main pointers that I would be looking for. Mm -hmm. And aside from, so you mentioned CK, but apart from that, there's actually nothing really specific on the investigation, is there? That would point. What about a CT, an MRI? Is that something that you would do in these these individuals? Uh, no. Okay. I mean, I can't see an indication of that. I mean, obviously. 
if people come in having had a seizure, for instance, they yeah. may often get a CT anyway mm -hmm. to look for cause of seizure other than the presenting sort of neuroleptic movement syndrome or serotonin syndrome. But to diagnose the conditions per se, there is no real role for no. those. It's back to what Osla said. Listen to your patient, they are telling you the diagnosis. True. Yeah. Okay, so management-wise then, it's going to be a case of, again, stabilisation of an acutely unwell patient, again, following that A3 approach, and you said fluids. Yeah, I mean, it's a simple thing, yeah. and I think in toxicology, the main adage is always, you know, supportive care has okay. probably got the best evidence for it, mm -hmm. and, you know, if the patient is agitated and actually sedating them is helpful. Mm -hmm. If they are dehydrated, they're, they're sort of febrile, they're sort of blowing off a lot of fluid and got lots of insensible losses, then actually you know putting up fluid helps anyway so it's the basics that need to be done mm -hmm. yes you could use special things like saproheptadine or dantrolene for instance for dantrolene i was just about to say dantrolene that's something that i learned in medical school but i don't yeah. think i've ever prescribed it no and again a bit like saproheptadine is not always that yeah. accessible okay often a lot of people use it i mean I, I wouldn't sort of be losing sleep over not being able to source naturally mm -hmm. and actually doing other things is, is more important. Mm -hmm. And the the pathophysiology behind the pyrexia. Mm -hmm. So in both neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome, you do get that high temperature, that high fever. Mm -hmm. What drives that? Um, good question. I'm not sure myself, but I mean, partly it will be related to the muscle breakdown okay. and the sort of um, whole serotonin syndrome or neuroleptic malignant syndrome affecting those. But also I think there's probably direct um, uh, effect on the hypothalamus in terms of temperature, mm. temperature regulation. So I suspect it's a combination of things. Okay. So where should these individuals be looked after? Uh, again, it depends on how sick they are. Okay. I mean, most people can be managed on an open acute ward mm. and they won't require much more support other than reassurance, rehydration and benzodiazepine therapy just mm. sort of calm them down with serotonin syndrome. I mean, if they present more sort of if they present later on in the piece and they are sicker then they may actually have multi-organ involvement so you know right. they may end up having quite a marked hepatitis with liver injury um, they may also have an acute kidney injury mm. um, by the time they present and those people may actually require much more organ support so if they're very right. agitated you may have to give them a significant amounts of benzodiazepines just to calm them down and yeah. actually that might in itself require intubation and ventilation just to control okay. the breathing better and, and to control their activities. One of the key things in when I see patients with these conditions, which should be fair, isn't very frequently, is when to restart the medication. So often patients who've been on a, a medication that's caused a neuroleptic malignant syndrome or serotonin syndrome, it's often because they have maybe an underlying psychiatric condition which sure. necessitates their need to be on these medications. At what point am I safe to restart them? Or is that should I be making that decision or should I be asking for advice from the psychiatric team? Yeah, so I, I, mean, I definitely would be guided by my psychiatry colleagues because I think they are the experts on using these drugs. And for instance, if they develop a neuroleptic malignant syndrome, then they will need to try and think of alternatives. Mm -hmm. Because if it's happened with one, chances are it may all happen yeah. to, with another. And often I mean, there are genetic uh, factors that predispose you to neuroleptic malignant syndrome, for instance. Uh, and therefore that I would definitely want help with. Like I said, serotonin syndrome is more an issue with regards to dosage. Yeah. And normally within sort of a few days, they can restart some of the medications mm. once they've cleared the whole syndrome. But um, I suppose the important thing is to support them so as to that episode where they've taken an overdose doesn't happen again. Okay. 
Um, sometimes, of course, not a deliberate overdose. Sometimes it's a mixture of what we prescribe as doctors. So we may end up prescribing the tramadol for pain. We may end up prescribing the SSRI for the mood. Uh, mm. And then they take other things on top, herbal stuff sometimes. Mm. Um, or they get prescribed some Well, St. John's Wort can induce your liver enzymes. Okay. If, um, it, I mean, it, those can have funny impact on things mm -hmm. as well. But it, often it will be sort of the enzyme inhibitors that um, can do it. So... I mean, seeing that antibiotics can end up sort of, you know, mm -hmm. not tipping you over. But often it's sort of, you know, they'll be on quite a few anti sort of depressants or antipsychotic medications. And then someone may add in another agent, like an antibiotic or like tramadol, which then just tips them over. Yeah. And they actually inadvertently cause a serotonin syndrome. Okay. Are there any particular medications within the serotonin and um, the SSRIs that increase the risk of developing? serotonin syndrome so like venlafaxine versus paroxetine or fluoxetine um so i mean venlafaxine is more than snri so yeah. it's like a noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor um so you're going to be more at risk with say paroxetine mm -hmm. or fluoxetine which are more selective serotonin mm -hmm. than say venlafaxine but um in general it's actually difficult to predict i mean everyone is different so you know there are people who are on lots of these drugs mm -hmm. and they never develop serotonin syndrome yeah. whereas others are more predisposed you know, so maybe smaller weight, they may mm -hmm. be more predisposed to the ill effects of the drugs. And the same with neuroleptic vinegar syndrome. Is there a difference between your typical and your atypical antipsychotics? So traditionally, um, the older ones are more dangerous in that respect. Okay. It can happen with the new atypicals as well, mm -hmm. but they are slightly different in terms of how they work. So the newer ones sort of actually modulate dopaminergic receptors, but also they actually act on serotonin receptors too. The older ones tend to be more sort of acting on sort of the dopamine receptor type things. Okay. That's a more general sort of point. Mm. Okay. Fantastic. I think that was an excellent recap of the difference between serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So if there is one thing that you want our listeners to take away from this podcast, what would it be? I think the points we mentioned earlier, I think um, you know, the main difference is that serotonin syndrome is a dose dependent mm -hmm. entity. Whereas neuroleptic syndrome is more of an idiosyncratic reaction to any dose at any time, but normally within the first six months. Mm -hmm. And on examination? So the, the difference between clonus for serotonin syndrome and the rigidity for neuroleptic malignant syndrome would be the main thing. Okay. And management-wise, it seems to be that it's very much supportive. Follow the A2E approach, intravenous hydration with a crystalloid, normal saline or Hartman's and, it's, and diazepam or any benzodiazepine, as you mentioned, to try and help the agitation, particularly in serotonin syndrome. Correct. Uh, and the other thing, which is sort of goes hand in hand with having a high fever, of course, is to try and uh, use medications to sort of lower the temperature if possible. Would you use paracetamol? Because that's something we love in acute medicine. You know, if somebody's got a pyrexia, give them some paracetamol. It's an antipyretic. Is that what you would do in these individuals? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people do give it. I mean, it may or may not be very effective. Mm -hmm. um, and actually what tends to work better is just cooling externally. And we have at times actually had people who require sort of active cooling, not just with fluids, but with sort of cold sort of sponging and even ice ice packs, uh, ice packs and um, actually laying them on a in a bed of ice and ITU and stuff gosh so that's yeah. that's certainly been the case in the past yeah yeah well thank you very much I've certainly learned a lot about the differences between neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome and I hope that everybody who's listening to this um, again to reiterate the key things are 
that serotonin syndrome is very much dose dependent and often happens in the first couple of days of starting the serotonin medication, whereas neuroleptic malignant syndrome is idiosyncratic, often happens at any dose at any time, usually within the first six months of utilization of the medication. Investigation-wise, look for clonus in serotonin syndrome and rigidity in neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And management is very much following that supportive pathway, but also with intravenous fluids, um, benzodiazepines if required, and obviously thinking about whether they're going to need more supportive care in an intensive care environment. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that everybody's learned something and a very, very warm goodbye from a very snowy Northern Sweden. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Home of Medicine podcast, a podcast brought to you by the EFIM Academy in association with the European Federation of Internal Medicine, a leading organisation in internal medicine. Thanks for listening.